and welcome back to this week's episode of the Mike the Gardener Gardening Podcast, sponsored as always by those rather lovely people at Natural Grower. Now, Natural Grower supply plant-based products for both organic and chemical-free gardening and your houseplants. They're absolutely crammed with certified organic growing power. And if you're looking for amazing results with all of your fruit and veg, your flower beds and houseplants, then Natural Growers award-winning certified organic peat-free compost and fertilizer are the very best you can buy. And your plants and gardens will love you for using it. All products are certified organic. They're 100% chemical-free and 100% peat-free. And those rather lovely people at Natural Grower have given me an exclusive 15% discount off all products for my listeners. Just pop MIC15 into the apply coupon field when you check out. In this episode, I go back to a garden that's not too far from me, the Harold Hillier Gardens in Ampfield near Romsey, where I chat to head gardener Fran Clifton. Now, I last visited Fran a couple of years ago, unbelievably, when we talked about their stunning winter garden. But today, we talk about Fran's role as head gardener, what it entails, how much time does she actually get to spend gardening as opposed to looking after the paperwork in the office, how her role as head gardener has changed over the years, and of course, lots more. We also touch upon the very important topic of climate change and Fran shares how she is responding to the challenges of an ever-changing weather pattern. And for those of you who think that gardening comes to an end in winter, oh no, no, not at all. Fran tells us exactly how she and her team get ready for next year's season and what jobs need to be done. We also talk about dahlias, tulips, the Chelsea Flower Show, rewilding, national collections, and if that isn't enough, even more on top of that. I think it's fair to say this episode is crammed with helpful information. So enough from me. Here's head gardener Fran Clifton. Well, this afternoon I am sat in the Sir Harold Hillier Garden. Just it's Amfield, just outside Romsey. Is that correct? Yes, that's fine. Yes, thank you, Mike. Hi. <laughs> Hi, and I'm with Fran Clifton, who's been on the podcast before. A couple of years ago, we came here and we looked at the stunning winter garden. So I'm back here today to chat to Fran about her role here, how long she's been head gardener, a little bit of her career what's happening in the garden and plans for the future and lots more and what what you're doing at the moment so welcome to the podcast again Fran lovely to have you here thanks Mike how many hours have you got well <laughs> <laughs> let's start with an hour or so today and see where we go it's always a pleasure to come here so it's, it's on my doorstep ish and it's just a lovely place so how long have you been here well I've been here 25 years starting off as a student many many moons ago and then being lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time and positions came up and I could move up the ladder so to speak and finally in 2002 became head gardener here at Sir Harold Hillier Gardens in Arboretum. So was head gardener something that was on your radar is that as an apprentice or when you first came here was that what you were heading towards? 
No, not really, actually. I trained in um, productive horticulture, so I actually was trying to go into being a grower. Uh, this is way back in the late 80s, early 90s. And uh, back home was Germany at the time, and uh, I was working in a market garden nursery. So we would do everything, be it from seed production to cut flowers to ornamental trees and shrubs to bedding plants. Everything was part of the apprenticeship. And so you came here, and so was that just to widen your knowledge? Widen my knowledge, and having learned that the English are terribly fond of gardening, <laughs> I thought, I'm going to give that a go. And, and I've had some really exciting placements where I then worked. Was it a private garden in um, Somerset where I was looking after the vegetable patch, or be it a very exciting nursery in Cambridgeshire with rarities which you wouldn't find in every nursery. So I had a, a really good go at a variety of different jobs. And when did gardening first knock on your door? Can you remember sort of like your earliest gardening memories and what stirred this passion for gardening? Well, we probably, as a family, were a lot outside and uh, my granny had a big garden and we then later on had a garden back home. But I think it was starting a holiday job, or a Saturday job, actually. Um, a friend of mine, his father had a nursery and we would all pile in and do cuttings in summertime and uh, somehow or another that struck a chord and I thought, I like doing this, I like growing, I like seeing things develop the way they go and, and then planting them out later on and seeing them grow away, something that you've actually created yourself through great propagation skills. So you came here, uh, what were your first jobs here? What, what did you actually train in? Well, I, I, as I said, I was doing the studentship here at the gardens and uh, that's a variety of things. And we, funnily enough, we're still running that studentship here at the gardens. So students come for a year usually and they go through all the different departments, so be it uh, botany or the nursery work or then in the different zones within the garden. So the winter garden, as you mentioned earlier, um, is a favourite one to work in or in summertime they might work on the long border with all the herbaceous and grass and climbers and so forth. Is there a particular place that everybody wants to work? Is there, I, I can't wait to work on? I mean, for me, I, I love the long border. Um, but is, that, is that a popular place or...? Yeah, I think they're all popular in their own ways. I mean, the long border, y yes, it is great, but it, there's hardly anything to do in winter. Well, not hardly anything. There's the hard craft of moving things around in wintertime. But in summer, of course, that's when it's really in its full swing and glory. Um, whereas the winter garden is equally interesting between November and end of February. And then the real work starts there in March when other things might be a bit more quiet with maintenance that's when the winter garden team set in um, but it, it's all interesting all around German's house the sort of the you know the historic part of the garden and the home of Sir Harold at the time that's where we have the only part where we for instance have bedding plants and and annual plants so it's, it's again mm. a very different atmosphere and the job of head gardener, how has that changed over the years? We, we live in this world, health and safety, paperwork, computer work. How much of your time or how much of your time is actually out in the garden and how do you spend the rest of it? Well, probably not enough outside, if I'm perfectly honest. But even if it's work which will enable the team to then... Uh, 
perform better or have tools or have tasks to do or sorting out the annual planting plan or planting list you know all those things although they're paper-based they're still connected to plants and that's really helpful and I tend to get a thrill out of that too. So when you look at planting, you're looking for looking at planting maybe for next year, is that solely down to you? Do you have to come up with the plans? Do you consult with your team? Do you have to go and speak to anybody? Now, thankfully, I have got a very good team behind me and they all have ideas too. So they do come along and say, oh, could we try out such and such? Um, or they might even pop up and say, oh, I bought this plant at the weekend. Do you think that'll be worth having here? And so there is, there's always a, a, a good dialogue to be had. Um, yes, I tend to do guiding and leading, um, but I do appreciate if team members come forward with ideas. So the annual bedding scheme outside German's house, for instance, that's usually a, an amalgamation of thoughts. Um, and then that gets discussed and thought about can we source the plants can we get hold of them uh, and and out of that discussion then evolves a planting plan which we then can realize either by growing ourselves or we buy in additional plants later on so we talked on about the team how many people have you got working with you here because it's how big is sir harold hillier gardens well it's 180 acres in old money and we've got if we're fully staffed we're 16 full-time members of staff well full and part-time members of staff Mm -hmm. and two students so if you do the maths that's 10 acres per person that's quite a lot isn't it i was down at where was i the other day um abbotsbury subtropical gardens yes lovely place yeah and i think he was saying they have about five acres per person um, to garden so it's interesting and you you say these things like oh five acres but five acres or ten acres is a big space to garden it is indeed and it's not it's not just that it's the long borders yes they are very intense and the winter garden has got a big workload um throughout the year or german's house with a very fiddly alpine section and and the historic beds and so forth but even the estate team mowing um they're two people constantly on a mower from the end of march until the end of well Ooh, definitely September, but this year seems to be going on a bit long. <laughs> so middle of October is usually the kind of phrase. But that includes shortcut grass, that includes lawns, but also the meadows. So it's not just stripy lawns in front of the house. Now, meadows are quite popular, certainly within sort of like popular gardening at the moment. How do you keep abreast of trends and what do you, how do you work out what's right for here? And do you speak to other head gardeners? Because in some respects, your head gardener here, is there a network of other head gardeners you can call upon just to sort of, what are you doing? Well, there is, so you build friendships with various local head gardeners, I would say, to start with. Or you might know previous colleagues who have been established in similar roles or moved up into those roles. So, so you do keep in touch with them. But um, there, is, there is a sort of a network of head gardeners sticking their heads together. And it's really helpful to have that because you have that uh, similar frame of mind you have well similar problems you know sometimes you're a a blue helmet to keep the peace and sometimes you have to be the garden designer to get a planting scheme together so it's it's a huge variety of jobs of tasks um any anything could come your way at any point in the day 
you touched on the the season we're it's very mild we're in the um middle well we're coming towards the middle of october i'm sat here in shorts it's quite warm how has climate change affected how you garden and certainly one of the questions i'm asked a lot is what do you plant these days to cope with the wet the warm the heat the dryness yeah really good question i think it's there is not one single answer to this um we've people probably will remember last year extremely dry mm. the winter was ghastly cold yeah. but because it was so mild all the way until oh almost middle of november end of november and then we had that complete uh, temperature crash to minus nine that was the real killer actually uh, later on in January again, you know, a week of cold where the temperature during the day didn't go above minus six. So it was a huge challenge. We lost, for instance, all our hebes in the garden. That, yeah. Now that's a common popular plant, you know, garden centre front row plant. I know, so many people, hebes, a strange one. I lost a hebe. I'm not a massive fan of hebes personally, but yeah, I lost them and so many people did. Yeah, and, and I think this is... So, I mean, what we do, you ask what we do to, to combat that. Yes, we try to plant right plant right place, so to speak. That's a good start. Mm. So I won't plant a swamp cypress in the gravel pit in our, our garden. Um, but we also, we st to get the young trees established, we do tend to water. So last year, for instance, we started watering at the beginning of May and we went all the way through to August. So that's an extra task. And we don't have an irrigation system out in the Arboretum, so it is literally going out with a bowser and a watering can. Oh, goodness me. watering every single tree. Yeah, that's, you just imagine that you'll have something easier than that, but that's a challenge in itself. Yeah, it is. I mean, on average, we plant about 150 trees out a year. Um, over uh, the first three to four years, it would be helpful if they'd had a can of water in a hot summer. So that you're mm. quickly totting up to about 600 trees. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. On a on a rotation, that's quite a lot of work. But on on the whole, I think with climate change, I think what we have to do, or not have, and it's not prescriptive in any way. Mm. I mean, anybody can do what they like, but we, we try to keep an open mind. And I think for us, it's important that we keep as broader aspect of growing trees as we can because we don't know what's going to come in 10 years time we don't know whether a certain pathogen dare i say it is yeah. going to hit our shores and suddenly we're going to lose whatever species we were banking on so with the arboretum being of its size and age it is and the variety we have i always call it a sort of a, a living library where we can refer to and see how trees behave and I mean, certain things cope very well in the drought last year, so there's no two ways about it. Visterias did very well, so did the pears, for instance. Mm. They were stunning. Certain apple trees fared extremely well as well. So there are things which like the hot weather, which can cope equally with the cold. So it's, I think, having every tool in your box you can get, I think that's the, the way forward, really. Have you made any conscious decisions at looking at things that you wouldn't normally have considered maybe more Mediterranean-type planting, or is that something that you haven't considered at this point? We definitely are looking more towards Mediterranean planting. However, some of the Mediterranean-style planting 
might not be appropriate because they won't like it very cold. So the minus six for a week mm. with no snow on as a cover yeah, yeah. is a problem again. So it's, it, it, I mean, to a, to a degree, it is, you know, stick it in and see what happens. When it comes to the planning side of things, how far in advance are you personally looking all the time? I'm assuming that sort of like next year's bedding, you talked around German's house, is that already in hand? Is that done and dusted or is that something on the list of things to do? Not quite in the bag yet, if I'm honest, but it should be. <laughs> but because we're, we're lucky enough to grow a lot of our stuff ourselves, we tend to buy in plugs. So as long as I order them by first week January, we'll be fine. So it does mean getting onto the planting scheme right now, figuring out, well, looking back, actually, what have we had? Mm. What colours worked well? What plants worked well? This year we had a really good combination, which liked the dry early on. It was it was very good. Um, could cope with the wet in July and August, which we did have. And uh, it, it then just filled out the gaps hardly any weeds no attention needed i mean it's you know a big tick for me in the box absolutely are you able to share any of the plants that you use any of those plants that did do particularly well so we had a, a mixture we went for colors white yellow and blue okay and we had for the blue we had um, two different uh, salvias farinea which were grown together just as a just the shading of that paler and a darker was really nice so those are bedding salvias uh, we interspersed that with one of the p dark purple verbenas so again really subtle the hint between them uh, peppered in between was the uh, very delicate white euphorbia. Oh, very nice. The, you know which one I'm in? Yeah. Uh, Diamond Frost, I think it's called. Yeah. Really, really pretty. Um, I mean, if you're allergic to the sap, don't do that. Use something different. But mm. it, you don't have to touch it, basically, at all. We, we didn't do anything. No, no. And on top of that, just as a sort of a cherry on the cake, we tried something, and it, in my mind, it worked extremely well. We used Black Eyed Susan. Okay. A yellow form without a plant support. Oh. And just let it scramble through the planting on its own. And it just made its own way. And it's just sort of literally just like a lace on top of the blue and white. And it, it's lovely. Now, was that something that you had heard about? Or was it something you just thought, let's give this a go and see what happens? I just fancied doing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's often the best way, though, isn't it? Just see, let's see what happens. Yeah, I think it's it's analysing the plant so that if the plant hasn't got a support, it's going to try and make its own way. Mm. Climbers always will go to the top and will always find the light and they will flower at the top. So that was the initiator, really. I was talking to somebody, I think it was Kim Stoddart, she's a climate change garden, she was talking about growing tomatoes, so they just scramble, and then of course as they scramble, they root, you get more productive tomatoes. Um, I've always grown them up um, a wire, so yeah, it's good Who to experiment. Knows? Yeah. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more actually. I think one of the things which is so exciting about gardening, you, you've mentioned fashions earlier on, and mm. sort of, you know, are there any... Uh, drives to do certain things you know uh, I think it's again being open-minded and maybe sometimes just trying something out even if you're the only one and nobody is following it's worth giving it a go and if at the end you think actually that was a dud one well so be it but you've learned if it was a good one well 
who knows where it's going to head. Yeah, there has to be trendsetters out there. Those people that are actually going to give it a go. Okay, so sometimes it may work, sometimes it may not, but nothing Absolutely, ventured. yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call myself a trendsetter, but it's, I'm, I'm very humble. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, listen, um, you have a very... It's a very popular garden, and I wondered, the decisions you make, are any of those driven by public feedback for people that come do they sort of comment on the color schemes we, we talked about the planting around german house do people say oh gosh i don't like that this year fran or gosh that is the best you've ever done and does that then color <laughs> no pun intended yeah. how you go forward with future plans uh, yes and no i mean if somebody comments oh that color scheme i really don't like it be it the summer bedding or the uh, spring bulb display, um, it's too late at that point to rip it out and start again for that year. Yeah. So we're just going to have to run with it. That's yeah. just matter of fact. Um, very often, it's also that I potentially don't like the combination either. So uh, if we have been daring, we were too daring, and therefore it really doesn't sit well. And lesson learned, don't mm. do it again. Um, are we are we influenced by visitors in any other way? Um, some people might suggest something, but and of course we listen to people's suggestion. But the nature of the game is that it's quite a set. Up. I mean, for instance, we have got an accession policy for our plants which are coming to the gardens because it's a it's a um, organised collection and therefore it's all recorded and logged within our database. So there is little wriggle room there. Um, we take advice maybe from if, if there's anything, if people keep walking across the grass in a particular path. I mean, a classic one, it's a desire line. So we might just say, well, let's just mow a path along there. And yeah. so we do take those kind of hints, really. Um, uh, apart from that, I think it's more down to the team who are on the ground, who know the gardens well, who know what works or uh, equally as important what doesn't work mm. so there is a there is a good chance that that is often met with the same kind of inclination from the visitors really and do you get a lot of visitor feedback or are people do people just come enjoy and go um we we get a fair bit yeah. um i think a lot of it is also in conversation and, and well maybe not written uh, sort of comments it's usually the negative ones which come as a, as a written form i'm sure others yeah. have the same thing um but it's often the comments you get from people either doing a tour or you working on the border and, and people go by and say, oh, it's really lovely, I really like this, or um, what are you planting there at the moment? So there is, you know, there is good interaction with the team as such. You talked about this library of plants that you have here. And are you, do you consciously keep an eye on that? Because obviously adverse weather conditions you may lose some plants is there a requirement to make sure you have one of each particular genus or uh, species of plants yeah i mean we're we're i mean we won't have all of it we're, no. we're concentrating on the uh temperate sort of northern temperate hemisphere however southern hemisphere thrown in with good measure whatever we can try to grow and therefore then grow we will um, one of the guiding principles is also that we, we try to do three of each species of trees if we have them and up to five of the shrubs. Uh, national collections are one of the big things for us. We have four, 14 altogether. Don't 
asked me to reel them all off now. I'd probably miss one out and then I'd be really told off. Can you give us uh, maybe a couple of the collections that you have here? Quercus is one of them, so the oaks. Yeah. um, With over 500 different species and cultivars. So that's here here in this place. Wow. That's that's impressive in its own right. That is incredible. Um, Lovely oak trees. We all know oak trees, but to see those different varieties is, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, they're stunning. Or or things like pines or hamamelis, the witch hazel people are familiar with. Yeah, yeah. So very keen plant on that. So there's a huge variety within those collections. So those collections... um, probably drive our um, you know getting new plants a little bit more than others however if we do see something rare and unusual somewhere be it in a nursery or in a private other collection or maybe a botanical institution offers some surplus plants on a on a list to other gardens for Mm. for sharing um, we won't say no of course and I'm imagining because I'm excited about the Quercus and Hamamelis, it must drive in visitors who love these specific plants. I, I would come and see the witch hazels for sure, and in fact I will do, I didn't realise. Yeah, they, they do actually. So th- they are very specific ones. I mean, another one which I really like is Corylus. Oh, uh, yes. You know, Those lovely, well, largely blue, yeah. Yeah, and and so uh, Corylus with with the nuts, you know, all the different ones, be it the Chinese Corylus um, or the... the Sorry, I was thinking Corydalis then. Corylus, yes, of course, yes. yes. No, it's not blue, but there we go. (laughs) I'll find out whether there's a blue leaf form. But Corylus, Corydalis is nice though. Yeah. Um, Corylus, yes, all the different... So we have that as a national collection with all the different nuts and all the different shapes and foliage and so forth. Again... It's a very humble plant, yeah. but you can do so much, and even in a small garden. Brilliant plant. Wow, so that's national collections. Um, and is there a lot of work around the administration to sort of document what you have and keep on top of the, um, the collection? Yeah, so we have one person in, in our garden. He is purely there to... Well, he's got many hats on, but one of the hats is looking after the database. So it's recording of all of the... Um, plants which come to the garden they will be given a number an individual number per plant and then that's recorded and then the team as they plant them out they will record where the plant is planted and when okay so there's some work involved there there certainly is chelsea flower show comes around every year in may um different themes come out of that we were talking just before we actually started recording about rewilding which is very popular at the moment how do you as a head gardener actually respond to those and obviously do you you can't take on all of it i guess i just wondered what your thoughts were about that yeah i mean that that's very often it's almost a bit like london fashion week probably yeah. you know after that everybody's going to walk around in in stripy pink tops you know uh, less so probably for the horticultural world since growing just tends to take a tad longer um with trends or fads let's let's be yeah, honest some yeah. of them are fads Absolutely. they don't last they long yeah, you know yeah. they're a um they're a, a quick fix or a, you know they, they don't last very long yeah. others have got more longevity so be it you know the old off borders is is one case in time you know it just encouraged people to look differently at herpaceous plantings mm. now whether you like them or not it doesn't matter yeah they had their place and i think um at times it worked really well the one of the other ones you mentioned rewilding again 
I, I like the subject of rewilding and I think it's again important for people to be exposed to different ways of thinking rather mm. than everybody having the same you know borders or, or, or displays or whatever yeah. um, so with rewilding the unfortunate thing is very often it gets a little bit politicized and the name rewilding might therefore slip into a into a sphere where the actual doing of the rewilding is not getting the proper treatment or the judgment it should be getting yeah yeah it's interesting i sort of like chelsea flower show i guess in some respects is quite influential with the general public but it's then how do gardeners whether they're sort of like in a big garden like this or a private garden like mine at home how do you adopt those um fads or whatever um or do you not do you just keep doing what you do best and what you know is right for your garden i think it's great to be challenged yeah so you know even if i don't like something at chelsea and i i think or wherever it is you know it doesn't have to be chelsea if Mm. if something comes up i mean uh, green walling uh, yeah. is, is another one um, mur vertical it, it's a lovely thing to do uh, I don't have anywhere the space to do it here with us you know I like the concept I've never done it myself I wouldn't know where to start with um, you know what construction do you need underneath how does it work with the irrigation how much looking after does it take you know but there are specialists out there who do a great job with that and I'm sure in certain aspects that kind of horticulture that kind of gardening has its place yeah now picking up on that um i live in bournemouth we have a shopping center uh, a new shopping center with this big green wall it's a thing of beauty i don't know the mechanics of how it works like i, I mean there are systems in place but to get us thinking about vertical gardening i think when we go into our own gardens it's very easy to cover the horizontal planes but we do sometimes forget the verticals and yeah um seen some incredible living walls yeah absolutely i think it's that third dimension of taking things up now if you do, if people don't have a wall that can green up but they might have an old hedge a tired tree or something well even a pollard of a tree or a dead tree trunk could be your vertical element in your garden so just stick an ivy on it or a clematis or a honeysuckle or whatever you might find in the nearest <laughs> uh, local garden center to you um it's one of those things which uh, you know i think again opening your mind and being um accessible to other options i think is always one of the kind of leading lights for me now the last time i came here i seem to recall you have talking about vertical accents wisterias growing up poles and that, now that again sort of like you come in you you have a vision of of a wisteria growing on a wall of an old country house to see them growing on these poles was yeah great and a different way another inspirational idea to take back home yeah, I mean, basically, at the time, we were offered a collection of 20 different types of wisteria. So they're all individual, they all have a different colour, they all have a different length of inflorescent. And we thought, well, we can't build 20 archways just to have a wisteria <laughs> climbing over. And we certainly don't have a lovely country house, you know, <laughs> lovely brick wall and timber frame. Um nor do we have 20 spare trees where we could just let the visteria go up yeah Um, we don't tend to keep climbers in that way Mm. Um, and it would take too long for the plant to be doing its flowering bit then anyway so we came up with the idea of literally 
putting it on in front of a pole. The pole is just there to get the the growth up on the wisteria, and then after a certain amount of years, once the trunk is firm enough and can stand on its own, we're hoping to take the frame away. But that takes some time. Watch this space on that one, then. We're heading towards autumn, then winter. Um, some people think or say, what do you do at that time of the year? There's surely there's nothing to do. What is happening here over that period of time, late, late autumn and winter? Well, that's the busiest and most important time <laughs> of the year for us gardeners. And uh, it, it, finally enough, next week, that my team and I, we're going to meet up and we're going to just plan ahead for the next four months of mini projects, what needs doing, anything for digging out, anything for moving. Uh, the planting list, of course, 250 plants this year need to go and be planted out uh, um, before the end of uh, December, of course. That's so, our target. Okay, perennial shrubs or a mixture of both? or Mixture of, of all three, trees, shrubs, herbaceous, okay. everything. So when it comes to jobs then, you, you've got these this planting to do. Another question I'm asked, and this is something that I have been asked and I have changed my stance on. At this time of year, there was a time when I would cut everything down to the ground and remove it. I've changed, but what do you do here? I think we're doing a, a pick and mix, as I call it. So on the long border, which we've mentioned several times now, they're, you know, mixture of herbaceous, of grasses, of climbers, whatever. Now, one thing, for instance, which we leave until springtime is all the clematis viticella. They just stay there on their framework through the winter and then come springtime and the first shoots just show up, that's when we cut those down. However, herbaceous and grasses is often that we, we leave most of it up, to be honest. Mm. Um, just if something collapses like a I don't know, what can I think of? Calamagrostis um, calfurster, for instance, a grass. If that suddenly, just in high winds or whatever, or it's unstable, collapses, we just cut it down. So we're not, we're not too prescriptive mm. in that sense. If an aster is still holding up, that can just stay. A phlox, which still gives nice, good structure, we can just leave that up. Um, so we treat it bit by bit as we go along. The only other thing which we probably don't cut down at all is all the semi-tender salvia. So salvia greggiis, yeah. usually. We just ignore them. Or the goras as well, the same thing. Just ignore them until the first green shoots show up in springtime and then they get cut. So just picking up on those two, the salvias and the goras, how did they fare over this winter that we've had where we've lost hebes? Because I lost my gora and I thought I'd lost my salvia, but they did actually bounce back eventually. So They did, you're quite right. So they bounced back with us too. I think for them it was more the fact of just leave them alone, don't do anything until we're all the way through. We lost a few of the salvias, not all of them are as hardy as others mm. um, so there was a bit of a selection there what we did also lose was penstemons they yes. tend to just go but again not surprising evergreen tender foliage so that was one which we lost yeah and do you mulch any of your perennials over the winter just to give them a little bit of extra protection or do they have to get on with it not really the only thing which we do um, mulch is actually cannas and dahlias so we're, we just mulch those one about oh, a good foot up. 
and then they just stay in the ground, don't do anything with it. Banana's the same. The only banana which we do take in is the murielii, the, the dark foliage. Oh, one. yeah. So now, what do you, do you just take that in? Now, I'm, I'm asking for, for personal reasons now. I have that lovely banana at home. I take it in, but I actually take it out of its compost. It's in a big container. Remove the, the compost underneath, keeping the roots. Drain it by turning it upside down, having cut off all the foliage. Oh, that's new to me. I'm going to try that out. <laughs> well, m- well, maybe don't. Tell oh, me what well, you no, do I will. Well, we've got a couple, so we could try it with one. Um, we normally take them out of the ground and then we cut the roots really harshly back mm. so we can fit it into a particular size um, air pot. Now, air pot are those with, where the walls have holes in it. Yes. Uh, it's yeah. just easier for transport and easier for planting out again because um, it's basically you wrap the plastic around the, the plant rather than putting the plant in the pot. Right. So we take them inside, cut the foliage back down to about three foot and then they go in a very cold greenhouse or cool greenhouse, I should say, frost-free though. Yeah, no, I slice all of the top growth off, turn it upside down for about a week and let all of the moisture drain out because I was led to believe that if that moisture is and that's the frost free part yeah. if any frost or cold temperatures get into that moisture yeah it just blown Explodes, apart yeah. yeah well it makes total sense yeah. I'm gonna try it out I'll let you know well I had one for eight years and then after eight years I lost it I was devastated because okay. after eight years it was quite a good friend but yeah. um yeah well they get quite chunky and big and heavy as well so yeah. it's yeah not as easy so dahlias left in the ground here Yes, absolutely. We do take reassuring cuttings at the end of the year yes. just to tie us over in case something happens, but a deep mulch over it. Um, it, it does mean, though, um, and again, we might do a mix and match here because um, they're so. When they emerge in springtime, it just takes longer for them to emerge and they are weaker in growth. So, actually, slugs and other ghastly uh, pieces of work in the garden which don't or shouldn't be eating your plants and do eat the plants um, they have an advantage there so probably better dig them up shake them out keep the soil off completely even just in a box under the Mm. bench in the greenhouse no water and then pot them up in springtime give them a bit of a head start and then they're hardier to go out and uh, flower so you say springtime so when do you take your dahlia tubers out when do you actually start them into growth when the first frost has hit the foliage, and yeah. the, you, you'll see it, because yeah. the foliage goes brown and just like a limp lettuce leaf, just, just flops. And then you just take them out and literally just dry them out somewhere in the garage or in, a, you know, in, the, in the porch or something. Just shake as much soil out as you can, dry them off, and then eventually, once the foliage has pulled in, cut that off as well and just store the corms. And... Is there any truth in the rumours? Should you turn it upside down? Again, sort of like, is there any ex... No, Fran shaking her head in. (laughs) I've turned mine upside down, sort of like any excess moisture comes out. Old wife's tale. Well, it, probably if you if you want to make sure, sure that it's it's really dry and you don't have as 
as keen a facilities to store them over winter and you're a bit worried about it, why not do it, you know? Mm. Uh, there's no, no right or wrong, really. Um, we happen to have an old shed which we can keep frost free and therefore once the once the foliage is dried off and you see it when you cut it off it turns into a brown twig yeah um that's when you know that it's it's really dry just put them in there by all means cover it up with crunched up newspaper to keep it really dry um but that should be fine daily is very popular back in vogue again do you keep an eye on those dahlias that are trending that you think, well, actually, maybe we should have those in the garden here? Or do you stick to a tried and tested formula? Well, very good question, because year before last, our dahlias here, we just got a bit tired of the colour and what it was. So we happen to be very lucky around here that um, we have a nursery which specialises in dahlias. So I sent the team out there and said, right, come back with me with 12 suggestions. We're going to do a complete changeover on the border next year. OK. And that's what we went for. So they had a good day out. Yeah, yeah. And they came back with a jolly mix of all sorts. But dahlias this year, fantastic. Yeah, mine did very well this year. Very good year for dahlias. Any particular personal favourites for you, Fran? I think American Dream is the one which I really like. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> One I had this year for the first Great. time. Yeah, isn't it a beauty? Super plant, super plant, absolutely. Uh, talking about favourite plants then, um, tulips. Um, do you plant tulips here? Do you treat them as annuals or do you um, try and keep them going looking for the more perennial types? Again, I'm sitting on the fence here. We're doing a bit of both. Um, perennial ones, we have the Tulipa sylvestris which is a woodland edge tulip, which we have sort of half as a meadow-grown tulip, which is yep. really lovely. Then we've got some alpine tulips. Best known one is probably Turkestanica. Yeah. Or, of course, the Batalinii ones, which are beautiful. Um, we also do a bit of bedding ones. However, since we've used tulip bedding plants for the last... I can't remember when we started, really, <laughs> but a good, a good seven to eight years... The soil where they were in has really been um, tainted by, yeah, overuse of tulips. So last year, for the first time ever, we had tulip blight. Oh, goodness me. Yeah. Yeah. So this year, no tulips. Uh, We're going to go over to Narcissus and Muscari and have a completely different display. So for those at home who don't know what tulip blight is, can you just explain? And are there any ways around that? Yeah, so basically if you if you have your tulips already in the garden and they're just growing there every year and pop up, you don't need to worry about it mm. because they're usually quite resistant and you don't change it over and you don't bring different tulips in. If you have them in your pots and you use the same compost every year, eventually um, the tulips can, doesn't have to be, but can develop this blight. And you will see it. It's very, very easy to see. The leaves will develop this sort of pale green and then turning yellowy and then turning into sludge um, foliage the flowers can if it gets really bad can also droop then later on so not a very pleasant sight no um so changing the if you use pots change the compost and planting a new compost every year uh, otherwise you will end up having problems like we had and planting later in the year rather than because obviously September we can maybe start thinking about planting some of our spring bulbs, our daffs, tulips a bit later, or is that another old wives' tale? Well, we tend to go into November as early as possible, though. Um, so, because we have the other bedding in until the end of October, so last week October, 
old one out, new one in the following week. So that gives us time to go through the bed, just pulling any weeds or whatever if we have any out. And um, and then we just uh, get the tulips in and rake it over and leave it until they're ready for the next year. And what other jobs are you doing in preparation for next year at this sort of time? Is there anything else or any plans for the garden for next year? Well, we have got one big one coming up. We've just had um, the permission to build a new small greenhouse for our own in-house production. Okay. Um, And that means we have to, after we finish with our planting list and the plants which we wanted to plant out are out in the ground, we have to move the rest of the nursery to a temporary location. Oh. (laughs) Which is not a five-minute job. No, I bet, I Mm. bet. Nine to five here? Is it nine to five sort of job Monday to Friday or is it more than that? Well, I'm here at seven actually. Oh gosh, that's early. (laughs) In the morning, I'm assuming. It is in the morning, yes, absolutely. Um, Night shift that hasn't started yet, but um, no, it it is a, um, you know, normal working hours, but it is such a pleasure to be here. So if you overrun, so to speak, um, it's not hard to stay on. And do you have your own garden when you go home? I do. And can you tell us a little bit, what, what's your own garden? What do you like growing for yourself? What are your particular favourites and how would you describe your garden? Well, eclectic is probably one way of saying it. <laughs> My husband probably would say, oh, it's a slight mess over there. Um, it's no, it's a mixture of, I like growing my own food. So vegetable garden is there, but also berries, fruits, you know, all those things mm. um, you can grow for uh, feeding people. And um, the rest of the garden, as well as it, I mean, I'm gardening on sand, actually, okay. uh, which is uh, sandy loam, but really sandy. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit of an experiment, to be honest. Um, parts are shady, some are sunny. So it's finding the right plant again. And for me, that is really trialing out. So I do try out color combinations, plant combinations. So for me, that's that's really the kind of a laboratory almost yeah so and i think it's good for us all to experiment in our own gardens i have a sandy soil as well which yeah can be a challenge but you learn right plant right place absolutely yes um any good recommendations for those who are thinking i've got a sandy soil as well some sandy soil sunny positions oh crikey you're putting me on the spot (laughs) um i mean what what does tend to work after a you know, or having having found out the hard way, I guess. But some of the peonies are doing surprisingly well, actually, which yeah. is really good. So that was really nice to see. But then also, uh, dare I say, wild thing, rewilding plant of <laughs> Dianthus carthusianorum, which is a delightful plant. Flowers for ages, real highlight. Um, so those things go, go well as well. Um, what hasn't done so well, actually, is geraniums, surprisingly okay. enough. Uh, maybe I haven't found the right one yet, but they tend to be better on slightly heavier soil. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a few good ones. Salvias, again, very good. Mm. Um, some of the grasses are very good. And then any of the sort of, but often, you know, bundled into one heading under herbs, uh, tend, tend to do quite well too. Fran, thank you for chatting today. For those who don't know the Sir Harold Hillier Garden, why should they come here? What What's for people to see? 
Well, it's lovely. Just come. It is. No, isn't it? there yeah. is. There's <laughs> loads to see. I mean, we uh, we're sitting here outside, and it, I can just see the first hints of autumn colour poking through, mm. the, you know, the different dis- distant foil. Um, but it it really is a, a multitude of different trees, different shrubs. Uh, if you just don't fancy going along borders and studying plants or whatever, you don't have to. Um, but it's really relaxing out in the wider field and um, just having time out, really. Fran, thank you so much for chatting today, taking time out of your really busy schedule. It's been a pleasure again. Thank you so much. Been joyous. Thank you. Well, I think you have to agree. We covered an awful lot of ground in this particular episode and I hope you found it really helpful. Thanks to Fran for taking time out of her schedule. And next time, I head across the road from Hillier's to chat to Charles Carr, who is the head of wholesale nurseries at Hillier Nurseries. And we take a closer look at the production side of horticulture, what goes into the growing side before plants come out to our garden centres. Now, thank you all for your lovely comments about the podcast, and I'm so glad you're enjoying it. And if you're new, hello there, welcome along, and thanks for tuning in. And please tell all of your friends about the Mike the Gardener Gardening podcast. Now, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, as I say, so keep warm if you can. It's freezing out there at the moment, and if you get a chance to get out into a garden or a green space, even if only for 10 minutes inspection time and to grab some fresh air. Nothing beats it. Now, before I go, I have some rather exciting news for you. I now have a fortnightly column in the wonderful Amateur Gardening magazine. Now, Amateur Gardening magazine is available from all... Oh gosh, that sounds a bit sales pitchy, doesn't it? Amateur Gardening magazine is available from all good news agents in the United Kingdom and is also available worldwide for digital download. Just type Amateur Gardening magazine into your search engine and you can also arrange for a hard copy of the magazine to be delivered to you in the UK or to download a digital version. So, my column will provide a welcoming and colourful breath of fresh air and gardening inspiration. I'll be touching upon plants, planting design, garden design and well-being, and as always, lots more. So, thank you so much for listening today, and I'll be back again in a fortnight. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.